This is the Milo Beasley Show. This is the Milo Beasley Show. There's only one thing you need to know. This is the Milo Beasley Show. And now, here's your host, Milo Beasley. And welcome to the Milo Beasley Show. I'm super stoked for our guest this week. Uh, I, I first learned about uh, our guest as a, a cast member on Grace Under Fire, but he's done so much more, a new book coming out. So let's go ahead and get right into it. At this time, please help me welcome Dave Thomas. How are you, sir? I am good, Milo. Nice to be on your show. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for, thanks for coming on. I'm, I'm, I'm super stoked. Uh, you've, I mean, you've had a great career and it doesn't seem like it's ending anytime soon. Well, it's not because I'm still plugging things. This is the book I wrote with Max Allen Collins. Yeah. And that thing is thick too. Yeah. It's like 300 and something pages. I mean, look, and they're not, it's not small print either. No, it's like it's not like my first book, which was an idiot book, a coffee table book about SCTV. This is a real book. Yeah, it is called uh, the the many lives of of Jimmy Layton. That's right. And, and so what what struck me is first, and and you and you co wrote it with Max Allen Collins, who has done a ton of graphic novels, including Road to Perdition. Uh, has done uh, Dick Tracy comics, worked on Batman. Um, so like what grabs me is that the, the cover actually looks like a comic book or a graphic novel, but it's not, it's, it's a full fledged, uh, is it a mystery? Yeah. It's a quantum mystery. So it's, I know in the world of quantum physics, you can tell a mystery story and I can get into that cause I've got it all, but I mean, it might be a little much. Let me give you the short. Yeah, Absolutely. The short version. A, <clears throat> a second story man, a little thief from South Boston, is on the run from a Vietnamese drug lord. And he goes across the river to Cambridge. He gets a Harvard sweatshirt and tries to blend in with the students. He's a young guy. This is something he does. But he needs money. So, and he's a B&E guy. So he breaks into a house. Turns out it's the house of a physics professor who's doing a quantum experiment in his basement. And poor Jimmy Layton connects the cables to the quantum computer and the gizmo that this guy, and I'll explain why I'm calling it a gizmo in a minute. Uh, the uh, battery cables connects them and they become a steering wheel in a car in Chicago over a thousand miles away in a different version of his life. And he starts hopping from version to version of his life. And as it turns out, at the time that he connected those cables, somebody shot him in the basement of the physicist's house. So two cops from Cambridge are investigating the shooting of Jimmy Layton while he lies in a coma at Mass General Hospital in Boston. And in his mind or in the other realities, and right. I leave it up to the viewer to make, or the reader to decide. See, I'm so used to writing film and TV, I call everybody a viewer. But uh, they can decide whether or not his little exploration was real or not. Now, if I can just take a moment to explain the physics of this. Right. This is based on the work of a physicist from Princeton who's passed away now, but he was alive in the 50s when he came up with this, uh, called the Many Worlds Interpretation. Okay. And it's a multiverse theory. Essentially, it's this, that for every binary choice in life, you pull up at an intersection, you go left or right. The road not taken, you turned left, that becomes your reality. The right turn, the road not taken, exists. And is a reality and will branch off into all the choices that you might have made from that decision to make the right turn and will be a universe, actually a multitude of universes, and they do exist. So I, when I heard that idea, I went, whoa, that is such a great idea. Right. What if 
somebody was able to bounce around from one version of his life to another. And the device for bouncing around is the shot in the head and he's in a coma. Because what Hugh Everett III said to his detractors, who were many, there were physicists who said, oh, piss off. That's so wrong, it's ridiculous. When you make the left turn and that becomes your reality, the right turn, the road not taken, and all the choices from that collapse. And he said, no, they don't. And right. he said, but unfortunately, the only way to prove it is to commit quantum suicide. In other words, at that binary choice, at that left-right turn, you shoot yourself in the head. And you will go right and you will explore that other reality. Now, unfortunately, that becomes difficult to prove using the scientific method because you can't come back from the death and report right. the results. So he still had his detractors. And and most people thought, oh, yeah, you can't have two separate realities from the same thing. It's a, There's another thought experiment called Schrodinger's cat. It's a cat right. in a box. You know this, right? You're right. So I think, yeah, I think a lot of people are familiar with that. The, is it, it's, it's both alive and dead. Correct. And so until you observe it, and then the act of observing affects the choice, and it's sort of like right. light being both particles and waves. And they're trying to, the hard thing about quantum physics is it's impossible to explain because <laughs> the mindset to understand it is we're not we're not wired for that we're in newton's world of dropping objects and they fall oh that's predictable how fast does it fall force times mass force equals mass times acceleration it's just like there's things that we're wired to understand we're not wired to understand this stuff but here's the fun part they got the instruments for observing things at the quantum level so finely tuned that they started doing experiments with particles at the subatomic level. And they start firing electrons through slits, trying to figure out, are they going to go left or are they going to go right? Well, guess what? They went left and right. The same particle went to places and, and they were entangled. They call that quantum entanglement. This is mind blowing. There's a very yeah. famous physicist called Richard Feynman. And he basically, he understood He's one of the fathers of quantum uh, physics. He said, anybody who says they understand quantum physics is either an idiot or a liar. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that's how I feel right now in trying to explain this. I'm both right. an idiot and a liar. But he, here's the application of it to a novel. It's like there's no such thing as time travel. And everybody knows that. But there's theories of time travel. And boy, you take, you, you, write a sci-fi novel and get that wrong the sci-fi nerds will pound on you they become a really angry twitter mob and they'll cancel you out of the world right so um i thought it was important to get the physics of this right and to try and understand it before writing the book and so i started working on this i tried to sell this as a tv show and of course, I pitched it to a couple of executives and their eyes glazed over. I could tell this was not going to go anywhere. So I thought, <laughs> screw that. I'll write it as a book. So I had about three chapters written. And then this is the Dave Thomas story. I've got three chapters of so many ideas that it's mind boggling that are unfinished. And um, I never would have finished it if I hadn't run into Max. And Max said, let me read those three chapters. And when we read, when he read them, he said, I like this and I could get you a book publisher. I could get you um, an, uh, uh, an agent or I could write it with you, which is what I'd rather do. And Absolutely. for me, this guy's written over a hundred novels, not just graphic novels, but actually sit down, read them, fat, yep. thick, many worded novels. And I thought, well, okay. I'm 70, but I'm not too old to learn. Let's go. <laughs> Let's go to school. I'll go to Absolutely. writing novel school with Max Allen Collins. And I had the best time. That's, that's fantastic. So what, so I, I guess there's two questions on that, but one, what, what got you interested in, um, you know, the, the 
quantum physics and how long have you been in, involved in that? And two, uh, I guess you could answer this one uh, after is how did you, uh, how long have you known Max? I haven't known him long at all. I only met him a year ago. Oh, and we, we haven't act. We met face to face at second city, but I don't remember that. It was a reunion show. Right. The 50th anniversary. And he lives in Iowa and he drove up from Iowa to come and see the show because he's a fan. And I met him there, but I met a lot of people that night and I don't remember them. But <laughs> then a mutual friend, Tom Kenny, who who is the voice of SpongeBob. Oh my gosh, I love Tom. He's a right. great guy. Tom introduced it. He said, Dave, this guy's a fan. You got to talk to him. So I talked to him on the phone and he said, send me the three chapters that you've written. I did. And then he said, all right, let's write it together. And we did the whole thing in the, uh, in the COVID world by zoom. We were not oh, wow. ever in the same room at once. This was a zoom novel. And it was great. It was wonderful. It was a fantastic experience. That's incredible. Yeah. And, um, I mean, to the point where when I finished it, I was kind of like lost. I mean, <laughs> I'd get up in the morning and go, what the hell am I going to do today? This is terrible. I got no book to write, you know? <laughs> so I started another one. And that, I mean, Max has got me going now. So I don't know. We'll see what happens. That's great. That's great. Now, uh, again, um, I mean, I, I think luckily for you, the Marvel universe is about to introduce everyone to quantum realms and quantum physics. Oh yeah. So, uh, I mean, they are you know, never squeeze that franchise until there isn't a, isn't a uh, molecule of liquid left that they can get out, you know? Exactly. Exactly. Uh, so, I mean, you never know. I know you said you, you pitch it as a TV show, but, uh, you know, oh, never say never. Back. Oh, yeah, yeah. That, that happens all the time. You know that you'll get a production company or an actor that'll go, that'll read and go, I want to do that, and they'll option it, you know? Right. So, yeah, that's possible. But, you know, I I was a comic book fan when I was a kid. Oh, yeah? I, oh, yeah. I had all the Superman comics. I mean, this was, it became a valuable collection because I bought one to read and one to keep. So the one I read that I'd get sort of breakfast cereal and milk on and things like right, that. Right, of course. Was not the one I kept. The one I kept was mint, glossy, beautiful, white pages. And I had a big box. And I had every Superman, uh, Lois Lane, Jimmy Olsen, Action Adventure, World's Finest. Uh, I think that's all of them. And from about... 1957 to about 1965, something like that. Right. And then, because I was such a fanatic, a lot of my parents would, their friends would say, you know, we got some old Superman comics in the attic. Dave should take a look. So then I started getting Superman number 48 in mint condition, Superman number oh. 11. Holy shit. And and so I started filling in the numbers between one and a hundred in the right. in the Superman world. Now I don't have a one because they're worth like what two, three million dollars now. Yeah. But I had a oh, I don't know. I th I think the oldest one I had was a, a four. I think I had a four and I had a seven, and then I had a nine, eleven, and then I had way more in the 20s and 30s and then a bunch in the 40s and 50s right up to 100 you know right and and they were all i mean if i if i didn't get good ones i would take them to comic stores because in the 90s while well, the yeah in the late 80s and 90s there were a lot of comic stores and these we're starting to come back, you know. So, um, 
And then I ended up in the Marvel world because my father-in-law uh, owns a bunch of self-storage buildings. Well, I think you know where this is going. And when people don't pay their self-storage yep. stuff, it gets auctioned off. Right. And sometimes it doesn't get auctioned off. And sometimes people don't. And so there were like about 20 long boxes of Marvel comics that he said, do you want these? And I said, yeah, what? give them to me. So I ended up with a pretty massive comic collection, you know. That's awesome. And, That's the dream right there. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I tease them for squeezing the Marvel franchise and squeezing every drop, drop out of it. But right. I do, I do love the heroes. You know, I have favorites. Right. And then there are other ones I look at and go, well, who's that guy? Why, why, why are we watching? <laughs> you know, when, when I saw the uh, Justice League movie, I'm a big fan of Superman. And I thought Henry Cavill is probably one of the best supermans that, that i've seen you know right um, christopher reeve was pretty damn good there have been a couple of others along the way that i thought were okay but cavell was just he just nailed it he looked like the guy and he had the heft and he had the uh you know he had the looks he had the face he had the and he and he was pleasant you know he didn't have the sort of comedy chops that um um christopher uh now I've gone blank on his name. The first Superman in 1978, not the oh, first. Uh, not George Reeves, Christopher Reeves. Chris, so. Yeah, Christopher Reeves. So um, George Reeves was the old TV one. Um, isn't that weird that they had the same name? Yeah. And then I was just talking about George Reeves the other. He was. Uh, yeah, I was just talking about him the other day. Oh yeah, what in what context? Uh, that he was on. Uh, you know, I love Lucy as Superman and and stuff like that. So. I didn't know that. Yeah. That's and his his, uh, his Superman suit is actually being auctioned off at an auction in, it's either, I think it's in November. Well, that's going to fetch a, fetch a pretty penny. Right. Yeah. I think, uh, I think there's a, there's a couple of them, but one of George's out, uh, outfits is being auctioned off. So um, wow. there's a couple of things that I was watching at auction, but that wasn't one of them because there's, that's that's too rich for my blood. What else is in the auction? Uh, there's some Back to the Future stuff. I'm a huge Back to the Future fan, so there's a couple pieces in that. But there's also um, a ton of uh, music memorabilia as well. A lot of old uh, 50s, 60s, 70s original posters, concert posters. A lot of like Beatles, uh, a lot of uh, British Invasion stuff, Hendrix, stuff like that that's uh, on the the music side of the, they're doing like a, a pop culture side and then a music side. Um, so I've been, so I, I checked out a bunch of, a bunch of those things to see what their estimated, you know, auctions are going to be like, Oh, well I might yeah, be able yeah. to afford that one, but you know. Well, uh, I collect, I've got model of the Titanic over there in a case with a, it's hitting an iceberg. And I've got the Terminator head that I was friends with Stan Winston. I got one of the Terminator heads. Whoa. Um, <laughs> I know. And um, got a few things, you know, that are just kind of collector's items that I just love. I love collecting stuff, you know. I, I'm I'm right there with you. My wall. I mean, you can see behind you can me. see. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. But like uh, still, I have a, a bunch of stuff on my wall. Like I have a Back to the Future wall and I have stuff over here. A lot of baseball yeah. stuff over here. Uh, so but... that, that movie is sort of regarded by screenwriters as the perfect script. Right. It was. And I remember seeing it in the movie theater when it first came out. And I was just like. Holy shit. Because I was a aspiring screenwriter at that time. And I looked at that. And you know that feeling you get when you see something that's so good that you're just depressed because you know you're never going to be able to write that. You know? Right. I came out of that movie thinking, God damn it. Well, I might as well just quit now. You know? And, and it was 
just such a great movie. Just all the moves and the turns and the audience was just cheering. And yeah. I mean, they were on their feet at the end. You know, it was, it was dramatic and it was a, it was a great, great film. Absolutely. Uh, again, huge fan. I have actually, I have, I have uh, production use stuff from the first movie uh, oh, on my you? wall over here. Yeah. I worked with the guy that was the uh, unit production manager on that movie. His name is Jack Grossberg. And they oh. brought him in. You know about him? No, I, I've, I've heard the name. I'm not familiar with him, but I've, I've heard the name because uh, you do a lot of, I watch a lot of documentaries. So of course, they, they're always name dropping people. You know, oh, well, blah, 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 did this on this day. They didn't put him in the documentary, which of course he's deceased, but uh, right. I mean, that's one reason. But they also didn't put him in because there are other glory uh, hunters that, Inch, you know, edge their way to the camera, and there was no room for poor Jack. But Jack was brought in by Universal after they'd been shooting for, I think, a month, and they fired Eric Stoltz and replaced him with um, uh, Michael Fox. And right. um, they said to Jack, "You got to be able to produce this for the budget. We can't. You can't go." Oh, yeah the original budget you can't go even though you're a month behind you're just gonna have to find a way to eat those losses and make it work right and jack jack was always a uh, up for that kind of a challenge and he said i'll do it but it comes off the lot and they were like no because this is where the studios make their money when you shoot a movie on the lot it costs a third to half as much more because of all the rentals that they just oh, suck you. Yeah. You know, makes sense. offices and sets and sound stages. And it's just much more expensive to be on the lot. And the reason they do that is so that they can avoid paying anyone profits because it's it's there and there's a kind of a it becomes a moving target in the budget world, you know, because these some of these categories, these budget categories, never close. Oh, there's still some invoices coming in. You know, ten years later, give me a break. You know, close the damn thing out. But um, anyway, uh, yeah, great movie, great movie. Uh, so um, I, I want to backtrack a little bit uh, to go back to uh, obviously what I I would consider a, a high point in your career, and that is SCTV. Um, I mean. I was uh, a little bit before my time, but going back and, and watching those as I was growing up, the, it was, I, I would, I would laugh so hard. I mean, especially at, uh, with the skits with you and, and Rick uh, with the great white North. Um, I mean, it, how did, how did what, how did that really come about? About as far and and I mean SBTV with TV yeah with Saturday Night, with Saturday Night Live being a thing, how you. were you know how were you able to be successful in in shooting that show? I mean there was obviously great talent, John Candy, uh, Eugene Levy, but being successful that's I mean got to be tough. Okay, so first of all, it wasn't successful at the time. You know we were late night, and in late night TV you always get you know the sort of bottom of the barrel um, in ratings. And uh, Saturday Night Live, he, here's what happened. Warren Michaels took people from Second City, which was a stage show. They had one in Chicago and they had another one in Toronto. Over the years, they've had them in Detroit and Cleveland, Las Vegas, everywhere, New York. Right. But at that time in the 70s, there was only two, one in Chicago and one in Toronto. The one in Toronto had great cast. I mean, it was like Dan Aykroyd, Gilda Radner, Andrea Martin, Catherine O'Hara, John Candy, Eugene Levy, Joe Flaherty. I mean, the, it was a killer cast. But there were some great people in Chicago, too. Bill Murray, John Belushi, people like that. Right. So I think there were more really good people in Toronto, but that's just me. And so anyway... When Lauren plumbed, sort of cherry-picked the actors that he wanted for SNL from the Toronto cast, he took Gilda and Danny 
from the Toronto cast. He took John Belushi from the Chicago cast. He took Bill later, but he had plans for Chevy and a couple other people like Lorraine Newman and Garrett Morris. So Bernie Sons, who was the owner of Second City, got mad that he was being cherry-picked by Lauren Michaels. And he says, we're going to do our own show. Well, you know, that was sort of, I was in the stage cast in Toronto at that time. I joined the cast with, a cast with Dan Aykroyd and Gilda Radner and uh, Eugene and Joe and John Candy had gone to Pasadena to open a second city in Pasadena, which was a total disaster. And they closed really fast, but, you know, anyway. Um, so Bernie wanted to do his own show. We were sort of like, there already is a show. You're not going to be able to sell this. Right. But he did. He cobbled together a deal with Andrew Alexander, who was the his partner in Toronto. And um, they've got a syndicated deal, which was uh, even back then the bottom of the barrel in TV late night. <laughs> SNL was in the bottom of the barrel of the primetime ratings bucket. And we were at the bottom of the bottom of the barrel with the syndicated <laughs> deal. And so we were in about 48 U.S. markets. And we had a national deal with a network in Canada called Global. And Global did all the paid all the below the line costs. And Bernie and Andrew cobbled together some money to pay the above the line, which was the actors. And trust me, they didn't cobble together a lot because we didn't make much. And um, but the show stayed on the air for two years and then got canceled. And then Andrew didn't want to give up on it. So he got another person to contribute to the above the line, which, as all shows do, it had been growing the right. costs to do the show, cast and makeup and hair and all those other various things. So uh, he found somebody in Edmonton, Dr. Charles Allard, that would do the show. And he provided a below the line, too. He had a television studio in Edmonton, and he was a kind of a man of the future. He he had he wanted to create a super station. He had big satellite dishes like Ted Turner did in Atlanta, and he was going to just beam the his stuff all over the world. Well, that didn't happen, but it gave Second City a home. And what we didn't know was that the president of NBC at that time, Brandon Tartikoff, had been watching our little show. And he decided, you know what? <clears throat> this show would be a great show for Friday nights after Carson. So we already got SNL on Saturday nights. Right. Carson takes up the first hour of Friday nights from 1130 to 1230. We'll own Saturday and Friday nights if we put this other show on. So we went on NBC. <clears throat> and we had to up our game from a half-hour show because that's how old how long the show was in the first two seasons in the syndicated deal. And in the third season with the Dr. Charles Allard and CBC broadcaster deal. And, um, and we had to do a 90 minute show, but we were on NBC. And then the show in its first season got nominated for five Emmys. And then all of a sudden we were successful after we'd right. been on the air for four years. <laughs> you know? Right. And I and I'm sure after, you know, there, I'm sure you were labeled uh, an overnight success, right? Like like every oh, yeah. hard worker is uh, is an overnight success, even though you're like, uh, we have years of doing this. There were a few people that were, you know, kind of like um, that watched the syndicated channels. And uh, there was a guy that for Newsday magazine in New York named Marvin Kitman, who he got on us in the first season and thought the show was brilliant. He just started giving us good reviews. So there were some people talking about it, but at the best, it was a cult hit until right. it hit NBC, you know. Anyway. I mean, at, right. <laughs> so that's the story. And I was actually there for like all of that, including the Brandon Tartikoff stuff. And Brandon was a really, he was a smart, he's gone now. He passed away. But he was a very smart executive. And he's the guy who put Seinfeld on the air. And then it didn't get ratings for the first year. 
And the other network people wanted to kill it. They wanted to take it off. He said, no, 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 no. This, this show will find an audience and this is a good show. It, and so he was like that. You know, he would find a show that he believed in and he would just push past the normal metrics that allow shows to stay on, you know, or get canceled. Right. Now you won an Emmy with uh, Second City t- uh, TV, right? I did. And then Where, another, well, you've won well, you've won what, two Emmys now, right? Yeah. Yeah. I got another one for a thing I did for ESPN. But, you know. Where do you uh, keep cause, those? Because I had. Do you see oh, them on the shelf there? That's there no, there beautiful. they are. They're on the shelf there. Oh, wait. Those are beautiful. Wait. I was turning it the wrong way. There they are. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right there. Yeah, right those there. are great. Oh. So, anyway, um, yeah, I have three because I was not officially awarded uh, an Emmy. Second City won Best Writing two years in a row. And I had left the show to do Strange Brew with Rick, the McKenzie right. Brothers movie. But um, I had written some stuff for. Uh, I'm trying to get this. I'm trying to get centered on your camera. Um, I had written some stuff for the second season. Uh, sorry for the season where the right. show got nominated a second time, and went back and did some sketches. And they said, "I'll give him one." So I got the kind of the Mercy Award for my work. Well, if anybody out there wants to give me a Mercy Emmy, uh, yeah, you know, uh, bring it on, like- right? Right. Yes. Right. Like I have, like I have some local yokel awards, you know, little podcast awards, but if somebody wants to uh, now, and you are also uh, nominated for a Grammy as well. Like, are you trying to get that EGOT? <laughs> no, that was uh, the comedy. The album that Rick and I did was not supposed to be a hit. <laughs> we, we did that thing. Um, after taping the show all day and we'd be burned out as hell. And, but we got it. We had a record deal because, you know, the McKenzie brothers broke out in the show and became very popular. Right. So all of a sudden we got a record deal with Polygram and, and um, so we had to do an album. And so we would go to a recording studio exhausted and burned out and just have a couple of beers and just, uh, uh, talk for two or three hours so we had to just go and get some sleep and so we did about I don't know it was either three days or a week of that after taping the show and because we had improvised the characters on the show so we didn't feel bad about improvising them for the album it was just right. a question it became a function of editing and um, so we said to our producer, all right, you got it. After three, five days of yapping into a mic, we said, uh, cut something together and we'll take a listen. So he did. And we listened to it. And both of us looked at each other and we, I said, I don't know. What do you think? We said, I don't know. <laughs> but Rick had, been a, Rick had been a DJ. Rick had been a uh, uh, disc jockey. Oh, and he and he said we gotta have two songs. A song. I said why, and he said because we won't get airplay on the radio unless we have songs. So I said oh. So he said all right. So then we had the spoken word part of it recorded, and we're in Edmonton, and that's where we did that. And then we came back to Toronto where we lived on a break and um, Rick talked his friend that he'd gone to school with Getty Lee from the band Rush into doing, into singing the lead vocals on her song. Cause we're not, neither Rick or I are singers. Right. So, um, so we did some spoken word bullshit for the song and Getty sang a song. And we had a couple of jingle guys that wrote jingles for commercials in Toronto, write the song. And we recorded it. And then we said, okay, that's the first song. And I said to Rick, why do we have a second song? And Rick said, 
Because when the first one plays out, and it will, you need a backup second song. Hmm. So that's why we recorded the 12 Days of Christmas, which was our second song. <clears throat> now, it became a perennial favorite. You know, I mean, it gets played every year and we get residuals still 40 <laughs> years later, you know, so I don't know. Hey, uh, that's, um, that's, that's pretty, I mean, that's, that's longevity. It is, isn't it? I mean, uh, uh, believe me, I'm old and I know it, but, <laughs> uh, but I, you know, I've done stuff that I never thought I would do when I was starting out and I look back over it and I go, holy crap, you know, and when I was a kid and I was watching, you know, the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, I was going, man, I'd like to be on that show. And then I was on that show, you know, being interviewed by Johnny and making him laugh. And then when I was, you know, roughly the same age, I, I was a big fan of Bob Hope. And, that, man, I'd like to work with that guy. And then I ended up doing that. I ended up being on some some of his specials and, right. You know, now, did you do your you did your in, in your Bob Hope impression in front of Bob Hope? Oh right? hell yeah, yeah I uh, I did it on his shows. I did it on his 90th birthday special. I came out and played Chester Hope, his nephew. <laughs> I did a cheesy little monologue. Um. Anyway, it was, and then I was a huge fan of John Cleese from the Monty Python. I just thought, man, I'd be great to work with him. You know? I got his book here as yeah. well. There we go. And then I end up working with Cleese on the movie Rat Race. Rat I think Rat Race is underrated. Oh yeah. For I, sure. I loved it. And it had really it had uh a, a ton of star uh, what's his name? Breckenridge. Um yeah, Meyer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh and then uh Obviously, uh, John Lovitz is killer in that. John he's Lovitz, so uh, funny being... in that car where he burns his lip and he's like driving Hitler's car and yeah. he's being chased by bikers. He's so funny in that. And then, uh, like I said, Bean, um, yeah, Rowan just, Atkinson, Mr. yeah, Bean, Rowan yeah. Atkinson. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I am very partial to. I love Rat Race, and if it's on, like, if I'm skipping through, like, oh, I need something to watch. And it's there. It's an old familiar that I know will make me laugh. Yeah. It still makes me laugh. And I mean, and normally <laughs> I don't laugh at all at anything that I'm in. So, you know. Uh, so uh, speaking of things that you're in, I, again, I, I mentioned at the very beginning, I think my, my introduction to you, at least, a, you know, like what I, what I remember is, was grace under fire. Oh yeah. Um, I, was the, and, and that was, I guess, a cult like a, a a show based in the South, and you're used to you know doing the the Canadian shows. Um, That's where you're wrong, my friend, because I was raised in Durham, North Carolina, and I was born in Canada. I was there till I was six, and then I my dad was a in he taught philosophy and so he was at duke and i grew up so from the age of six to 12 i was in durham oh nice and so those are very formative years you know absolutely i just flew and in the durham a couple what? months ago so i just flew in the durham a couple months ago i was Did you really? doing a comic convention and and in, in, in raleigh so uh I've, Spent a little bit of time in that area. It's very. I didn't even know there was an airport in Durham. <laughs> I bet you had to go to Raleigh for the airport. Uh yeah. So um, I, I guess well, it's called the Raleigh Durham Airport. Oh, is it? I guess yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. Right. But right. Uh, I've gone out to the um uh, the I've been out to Durham Bulls games and stuff like that. So uh, obviously super well, famous we, from the uh, from the movie. We lived uh, on Markham Avenue, which was right across from the campus. Oh. And so my dad's in the philosophy department and my mother, like he wasn't making a lot of money. And my mother got a job as a secretary, but turned out to be assistant with a guy by the name of uh, Dr. C uh, Carl Zener and his partner, Dr. Joseph Banks Ryan. 
and they worked in the psychology department at Duke, but not the regular psychology department, the parapsychology department. And they were doing experiments, trying to find out if people had ESP and meeting people that made claims that they had powers, going to seances and busting people for bullshitting or coming up with fake stuff. <laughs> and my mom was, because she could take shorthand and they, you know, the tape recorders at that time were 50 pounds. Nobody was lugging those around. And my mom would go with them and take shorthand notes. And uh, she had a really interesting time working in the psychology department at Duke. I bet. I should say in the parapsychology department. It wasn't really, you know, it's funny because it was regarded kind of with disdain by the regular psychology department. Because they thought these lunatics are giving us a bad name and with their crazy science experiments. But the Zener cards, which test people for ESP, they're cards that have a circle, square. I was that's what I was gonna ask about if they were the card if, if you saw that, the cards. Those are the cards that were developed by Dr. Carl Zener and they used them in Ghostbusters. Right. Yes. That's exactly where my like that was exactly what I pictured. Yeah, yeah. Well, you got a pretty good reference level. You know a lot for a uh, young guy. Most young people don't have a very deep well of knowledge. Oh, I'm a, a super nerd. Okay. Well, <laughs> it's good then. I consider that. I think it's a compliment. I think to have a good reference level is really important. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Uh, you know, that's 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 really cool. And and, and you got to see. And yeah, I was going to ask. Yeah. Did you see the cards? And so. Um, well, yeah, I did. But, you know, they had several sets of them. There wasn't right. just one set, you know. Now, did you try it? Yeah, I had no ESP powers at all. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I think, well below average. <laughs> all right. Uh, well, what I want to do right now is uh, something that we do on every show. It's called the Milo Beasley Show Frequently Asked Questions. And these are going to be the same five questions that I asked to every single one of my guests. Okay. Are you ready? There's there's no wrong answers. Just first thing that comes to your head. Sure. Question number one. Who was your first celebrity crush? Haley Mills. I was in love with her at the parent trap. I wanted to meet her and marry her. And I never did. Either. <laughs> meet or marry. Yeah, I, that's a, that's a great one. I, uh, loved her and, and, uh, well, I guess it was before saved by the bell. So it was, um, good morning, miss bliss. Yeah. Yeah. So, but yeah. Uh, parent trap. What a, what a great movie. And the fact that like, it took me so long as a, as a, a child to figure out that it was the same person <laughs> just, yeah. Yeah. Just meant I, that it was such a great, great job all around. Her, my parents were both British. So it was a combination of her dialect and just her sweet little blonde face. I thought, God bless you. You're a doll. I, I was in love with her. Uh, absolutely. Uh, I, I get it 100%. All right. Question number two. What is your guilty pleasure song? So what song, you know, maybe it's not everyone's favorite, but you are playing it whenever it's on. You're turning it up. You're singing it. You're turning it on in your car. You don't care who's next to you. Okay. This relates to me growing up in the South. It's a okay. song called uh, Louisiana 1927 by Randy Newman. It is probably the song that has brought tears to my eyes more than any other song that I've ever heard. I'm going to have to write a, this down. It's a very sad song. As you may know, Randy Newman is a, uh, he writes scores for movies. So nobody writes for strings better than randy newman and the strings in that song are just in my mind they capture the essence of the south in music that i've never heard anyone nail it the way he nailed it with that um there's a pathos and a sadness to the american south hmm. i don't know if it's still that way but when i was there in the mid 50s to the mid 60s it was a place where a beaten people who had lost the civil war were talking about you know ways that they could get it back 
somehow they could get and these are people that weren't even alive during the civil war but they just they were still fighting it in their heads and the that song captures the sadness of it. It's targeted at New Orleans and the flooding that goes on in Louisiana and how that, uh, I mean, I don't know how many times they've rebuilt in Louisiana and New right. Orleans. It's just, they just get flooded every year. And the people that live there have an indomitable spirit. <clears throat> anyway, that's my favorite song. Now, and I'll play it whenever I can. Fantastic. I have it written down. I'm going to listen to it like right after this, right after we get done, just so I can can uh can understand all right so this is uh if you had to if your life depended on it would you rather fight one giant duck or a hundred duck size horses <laughs> well i would have to go with the horses because i happen to know that geese are ridiculously strong and i was attacked by a geese when I was by a goose when I was a little kid. And I got the shit beat out of me by that goose. Their wings are really powerful and they are they are fearless. So a big duck would probably have powerful wings like a goose because they can fly and would be a formidable enemy. Whereas a bunch of tiny duck-sized horses, you could probably kick the crap out of them and they'd just run away. I've never so like I, I again I ask. I ask this question to all my guests and I've never, everyone usually talks about the legs, you know, or the mouth. Nobody ever has ever mentioned the strength of the wings. And I think that's, yeah, that's something I've never thought about. If you've ever been attacked by a goose, you would know they're formidable opponents, you know? Right. Yeah. And they, yeah, they, I mean, they have to be strong to fly. Like never thought about that. And they're big like Canada geese are big. That's what um, Sully Sullenberg got in his turbo fans on that plane that landed on the Hudson. You get a couple of big full-sized geese going into a turbo fan and it's over. That thing is <laughs> toast. Do you uh, know what I mean? I, I, yes, I do. I yeah. do. I, question number four. Mm -hmm. What is your favorite movie quote? Okay. This is a weird one. It's from Tombstone. Okay. And it's Michael Bean's line. And I got to actually talk to him about this a year ago, a year and a half ago at a uh, Pensacon. I went to Pensacon because my friend Billy Zane said, come to Pensacon. I'll, I'll, I'll set you up. You can sign some autographs and make 25 grand or something. And, and uh, he said, um, it'll be fun. And uh, my friend Michael Beans come in. I said, oh, I want to meet him anyway. So sure, okay, I'll come. So here's Michael Beans' line. It's from the very end of the movie when he and uh, Val Kilmer are facing off who's playing Doc Holliday. And he says, uh, I got no quarrel with you. When he shows up, he goes, well, it starts, well, well, I, I didn't think he had the guts to show up, something like that. And he and he goes, I'm your Huckleberry. Now, that's the one that most people would say. Right. That's the one, yes. Quote, but that's not mine. Oh. Ooh. And he says, Bean looks at him when he, because the light changes and he sees that it's Doc Holliday. And he goes, I got no quarrel with you. And Holiday, he calls him Holiday. And he goes, I beg to differ, sir. We had, uh, we had something that, you know, we had some business that was unfinished. And uh, and he goes, well, I, being still trying to get out of me, he says, well, I was just messing around. And Val says, well, I wasn't. And then there's just a moment when Bean gets this crazy look in his eye and he goes, all right, Lunger, let's do it. I love that line. I laughed when I heard it the first time. Because he's calling a guy with tuberculosis longer. Right. And, but his, he was, Johnny Ringo was so insane that he was just like, all right, let's do it. <laughs> I love that line so much. And when I talked to Bean about it, because, you know, I he, I was a fan of his from Terminator too. He's, you know, he's Kyle. He comes from the right. future to save Sarah Connor. Um, anyway, I said, uh, 
I said, you know, that was my favorite line in the movie. He said, it was mine too. He said it was his favorite line. That's awesome. Yeah. It's awesome. Well, maybe we can get you back at Pensacon next year. Uh, I, I think I'll be hanging up there. Uh, February 18th through the 20th up in Pensacola. Oh, uh, it's earlier this year. It was in April or something. Yeah, it, it's, uh, you know, it moved, you know, there were... Uh, oh, no, it was the end of March. It was just before COVID. Right. Pe- Florida started getting COVID cases, and I was still there. And, right. And I flew back like this. Oh, you're right. So it was, it was, as of 2020, it would have been the February 28th through March 1st. Yeah. Because I had another convention that same weekend. So I wasn't able to go to Pensacon that weekend. So, uh, but Hey, maybe you can uh, head up uh, in, in the future again, next year, February yeah. 18th through 20th, Pensacola. Okay. Yeah. Cheap plugs. It's, it's all about the cheap plugs, right? Absolutely. <laughs> all right. And our final question here, if blank was an Olympic sport, I would win a gold medal. Fill in the blank. Hmm. What do I do better than? This this one stumps me. The other one's easy. This one is like, it has to be something that I think I'm really good at. And, and I don't. I got to give you an answer. So it'll be but it won't be a well-defended answer. <laughs> I can just, I can just tell you right away. My, the first thing that came to my head when I, right. when I uh, heard that was eating. <laughs> eating was an Olympic sport. Cause I do love eating. What's your, uh, what's your and, go, what's your go-to meal? Uh, it would be um, linguine pasta with uh, pesto sauce and sausage. Oh, that, to me is a trip to heaven. My wife makes this really beautiful toasted uh, Italian bread with um, sprinkled uh, garlic, basted with garlic oil and um, olive oil and garlic and then cheese sprinkled on it. And, uh, but very lightly so that it doesn't become like, you know, eat having a grilled cheese sandwich with your pasta. It is. It's a heavy meal, but it's a great meal. I love it. Uh, I'm super hungry right now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right. So the second thing. So before we wrap up and I can go eat uh, is going to be called the Milo Beasley show top five. I'm going to ask you a random question. No particular order. Give me your top five. We kind of touched upon it earlier. And that is um, time travel. Not possible, but time travel movies. Top five time travel movies. Uh, or TV shows, I guess. Sure. Okay, Terminator. Terminator right. 2. I thought that the sequel, like Aliens, was he outdid himself. Cameron outdid himself with the sequel. Absolutely. And then a little simple, sweet one called About Time with... Um, British actor, uh, what is that guy's name? About time. Yeah. Hold on a sec. You can edit this, right? <laughs> this is me looking it up. What is that guy's name? I can't believe he, he was in Love Actually. He played the rock and roll guy. Uh, I'm, I'm looking. Uh, is it? Uh... Bill Knight. So it's called About Time. Is Bill Nye, Rachel oh, McAdams yes. is in it. It's a delightful, sweet little movie, and there's no time machine, and that makes it a delight for me and wonderful to watch. Okay, so that's three. Right. About Time is my third. My fourth would have to be the original Time Machine with Rod Taylor. And my fifth 
would be Back to the Future. Those are my favorite favorite time travel movies. Um, uh, again, thank you so much for for coming on. Again, we want to, you know. Um, hey, yes, folks! Available yeah. on Amazon for the shockingly low price of eight ninety nine. The mini lives. Ooh, that's great! Right the there, mini the mini lives of, of Jimmy Layton, written yep. by Dave Thomas and Max Allen Collins. Pick it, Thank pick you. it up. Uh, it's, I mean, I, I can't honestly, like, you know, uh, this sounds silly, you know, and I know everyone always says it, but I'm, I'm super excited to read it and I'm super excited to, to add it to the shelf. Um, uh, it might be the biggest book on the shelf, uh, at 300 some pages. Um, I know, I, I know. I'm, I'm, I'm super excited. I mean, but I think uh, you'll it, enjoy it. I think you'll have fun. Yeah. It sounds, it sounds like nothing that's up there already, which you know, it, that piques my interest, but uh, I, I'm super excited. I mean, and, and it's a, a new foray, you know, that, that you're jumping into and, and that's great. And I want to be able to read it before the movie comes out. So I can be like, the book was better. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope that's not true actually, because I want the movie to be better. <laughs> then, then I'll get some money out of it. This is true. Any, anybody? Do you have anybody in mind for uh, for for the part of Jimmy? You know who would kill it? Sam Rockwell. Yeah. He's speaking of it. speaking of he Terminators. Would, he would. He would really. Have you seen that movie he did with uh, Kendrick, uh, where he's a hitman? No, I haven't. Oh, <laughs> that's delightful. It is a great little movie. Um, hold on a sec. I got to do a little plugging for Sam Rockwell. That's, he's one of my That's what we're all about. Uh, so, wait, did I just, I diminished the uh, picture. Hold on a sec. It'll take me just a second here to get it up. Um, okay. Mr. Wright. Mr. Wright. Okay. I have not seen it. Oh, you got to see that. You will love it. Fantastic. Then, That's on. Hold on. Is it spelled R-I-G-H-T? Yeah, yeah. And it's it's him and Anna Kendrick. Oh, love it, love Anna. Yeah, yeah. He's a he's an insane hitman in it. It's very light, you know. It's 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 it's, it's like. Have you seen um, Ryan Reynolds' The Hitman's Bodyguard with Sam? Yes, Max? I love that. That was just a fun ride, you know. Yeah. I love yeah, movies I, where I don't have to think. Bingo. I I, yeah. I love that. And then uh right around where it's Christmas season and you, you mentioned Anna Kendrick from Mr. Wright, uh Noel on Disney Plus, one of my all-time favorite Christmas movies, and it's relatively new, so um that's another fun movie if you haven't I'll, seen it. I haven't. I'll check it out for sure. Absolutely. All right. So before we wrap up, where can folks where can folks find you on the the social media? I don't know where that that folks just came from. That was a weird little thing. Where can folks find you on the on the internet? Uh, I'm at I have my own website, DaveThomas.com, and there's links to my Twitter account, but I, I never really use it. And um, but there's occasionally I put the book up as a tweet. And then what did I do? The last one before that was for Norm MacDonald that I put a, oh, right. a, a sad tweet up. But um, mostly I've been putting up tweets about people that have died that <laughs> I feel bad that they died, you know. But uh, anyway, um, yeah. So those are the places. I, I don't have Facebook and I don't have any Instagram or any right. of those. But again, DaveThomas.com for, for all your needs. And will there be a link to buy uh, Jimmy Layton on there? There will. It isn't up there yet because I'm really a Luddite, but I'll get to it. I'll do it. 
All right. Uh, again, thank you so much for, for taking the time to chat with me this evening. Um, there's so, gosh, there, I feel like we need a part two. I, there's so much we didn't get to like, That's uh, true. so, uh, well, for, for sure. We'll, we'll, we'll schedule a part two after the sure. book comes out after the new year, let people read it and, uh, and we'll get back together soon. Okay. Sounds all good. All right. And thank you all for watching. We'll see you guys next week.